Kia ora koutou. Welcome to Stuff Explained. I'm Jess McCarthy. And today, is Australia finally getting to grips with its racist past? This National Reconciliation Week. Wherever you are in Australia, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I stand. I pay respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. The Bundjalung Nation, the land on which I stand. I acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation. What you just heard there was an acknowledgement of country. It's a way for Australians to pay respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and it's becoming more and more common. You might even hear it next time you land on a Qantas flight or listen to an Australian podcast. You can even spot it in an email signature from someone working across the ditch. It feels like a big change for a country which we've often written off as our racist neighbour, one that makes us feel a lot better about our less than glowing race relations back here. And now, Anthony Albanese, Australia's Prime Minister, is planning an historic referendum, which, if it's successful, would see Indigenous people permanently represented in government. To find out more, I'm joined by Dean Parkin from the Kundamuka peoples of Munjibara in Queensland, who's been closely involved in the drive for change. Dean, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I'm a little embarrassed to admit to you, but I had never heard of the referendum before. Can you talk to me about exactly what will change if it's successful? The referendum is about changing the constitution to give a constitutional guarantee to an Indigenous voice to parliament. Um, So it rolls off the tongue, um, but there's quite a lot of it that sits behind that. For many decades now, we've been coming to terms with this question of how do we formally recognise the unique status of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first peoples of the Australian nation? How do we we recognise 65,000 years of more of continuous connection and culture and heritage? And at the same time, we've been wrestling, as some people might be aware, with some of the real challenges facing many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our communities. So how do we make a real practical change on the ground? So the proposal that's on the table for the referendum is, firstly, the recognition has to be meaningful. It has to be practical. So therefore, what we need to do is give a representative voice to Parliament for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to advise the Parliament and Government on laws that have a particular impact on on our peoples. And the referendum, we're hoping um, to have that by the end of uh, next year, 2023. So from a New Zealand perspective, we have the treaty and that is not perfect by any stretch, but from an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander point of view, there wasn't even that in terms of recognising that relationship from 100, 200 years ago, was there? No, that's right. Um, so you obviously had the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840, which was, as you say, has been imperfect, but at least struck an agreement between uh, the, the British and the Māori peoples. You know, compared to Australia, it wasn't until 1992 with the Mabo High Court case there was this doctrine in Australia called terra nullius, which basically means that when the British arrived, the operating assumption was that the land was empty, that there were no people here. So not only did we not have a treaty, but the legal foundations of this modern nation was founded on the basis that there were no people here, and clearly that was not true. We're playing catch-up quite a bit. A couple of years ago, there was a statement uh, produced called the Uluru Statement from the Heart. That's where this idea of a voice came from to formally do this Indigenous constitutional recognition piece. And really importantly, there were two other changes proposed in that Uluru Statement treaties. So actually doing a process that obviously New Zealand has already gone through and truth telling. 
So really a, a deeper sense of the understanding of Australian history, both the pre and post-colonial experience. Anthony Albanese feels like he's been in the job for five minutes. He only got elected in May. Is this a new drive for change that's all come from him or was the the ball rolling before he got into office? There's nothing new in Indigenous affairs in, in our country, I can tell you. This whole movement, this whole push for a referendum is decades old. The Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Linda Burney, now in the in the Labor government, the first Indigenous woman, mind, um, to, to hold the position of Indigenous Affairs Minister. She was involved in writing a report to Paul Keating 27 years ago about Indigenous constitutional recognition. That was just another step in a long history. And it wasn't until election night this year in May when in his victory speech, Anthony Albanese said that he is committed to the full implementation of the Uluru Statement and, and a referendum on a voice in this term of parliament. So can you talk to me a bit about the actual practical things that you mentioned, the, the practicalities of the voice and how that would actually change things for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? It's not rocket science. We've had many, many reports and investigations and inquiries over the years, and they all say the same thing. If we're trying to deal with some of the challenges in our communities, the only way that we can do that effectively and sustainably is when Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are at the table being involved in the decisions about their communities. I mean, we've got a situation here in this country where there are multiple Indigenous languages spoken. In some cases in, in, in remote parts of Australia, English might be the third or fourth language spoken in families and communities. And so is, is it any wonder that politicians and bureaucrats based out of Canberra and Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane, despite the best of intentions, and there is a lot of good intentions there, but it's just not possible for them to be able to really craft the solutions through policies and laws that are needed on some of the really pressing issues facing our communities, things like the health issues, the education issues, youth detentions are a really big one. Indigenous Australians are the most incarcerated peoples on the planet, bar none. So there are some really big challenges, long-term challenges. The voice is about bringing those people who understand their communities best, who understand their families best and these issues, bringing them closer to where the decisions are made about them. What's different about this one is that by having a referendum, it'll have a constitutional guarantee. It means that the voice must exist going forward. We've had a history in Australia where we've had these voices before, Governments and some politicians at times get a little bit nervous about the advice that they're providing. Nobody likes being criticised. And what we've had is those bodies, those representative bodies, kind of abolished and set aside by governments. That constitutional guarantee will mean that the voice must exist no matter which party is in, in government at the time. So we take a step back now. You mentioned the fact that Aboriginal people is the most incarcerated in the world. What else can you tell me about what the actual race relations is like in Australia today? I mean, for far too many of our people and communities, the numbers are not great. You know, you have life expectancy challenges. You've got, uh, for example, men that live in Western Australia, life expectancy of about 66. I mean, you know, there's a really significant gap between Indigenous men and non-Indigenous men in this country, and the same goes for women. There's a whole bunch of statistics that the governments have been hard at over the years trying to address. There's been countless reports and inquiries and commissions, but proven impossible for governments by themselves, which is why we say the voice is necessary. I'd also say more generally, there's a generational change happening in Australia. And when you listen to some of the young people and what they're being taught at school with respect to Indigenous language, Indigenous cultures, more about history, it's slowly starting to take an effect where more and more Australians are getting, I guess, more informed about the Indigenous heritage of this nation and are more, I guess, I guess there's a, a more hunger to, to, to learn more and to, and with that comes 
sense that you know we can and should be doing better with respect to the position of, of many of our people. The proportion being so small, being about 4% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, that makes it tough to win a referendum when 96% of the population aren't going to be affected by it. How do you accomplish or, or navigate that? So referendums in Australia are really hard to win generally. Uh, there's been 44 referendum questions posed since 1901, uh, since the Federation and the Constitution was in place. So out of those 44 questions, only eight have been successful. And of those, um, uh, the last one was non- 1977. So we're at a practice in Australia with respect to successful referendums. Interestingly, there's been one referendum on Indigenous issues back in 1967, and it was the most successful referendum in Australian history. Nearly 91% of Australians voted yes, and six out of the six states, every single state in the country voted yes. Those are the two things that need to happen to win a referendum in Australia. Firstly, you need a a majority of voters nationally, so just a majority of Australians across the country. That's the first hurdle, if you like. You also then have to make sure that you get a majority of voters in the majority of states. So there are six states in in Australia. You have to win at least four of those six states in a majority to satisfy that second hurdle. So they're very difficult to win. Nonetheless, there is a deep sense of goodwill from Australians on this particular issue. On average, people won't know all the statistics, they don't read the reports, they don't follow the politics, yet they're getting on with their lives, and yet there is a sense that we can do better. We know we've got work to do. These things don't just fall into your lap, but we're, we're quietly confident that uh, between now and the referendum, we'll build the support needed to uh, to get this over the line. Dean, best of luck with it. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's been a fascinating, seriously fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. That's it for this episode of Stuff Explained. I'm Jess McCarthy, and on behalf of our producers, Philippa Tolley and Jonna Williams, thank you for listening. You can find more Stuff Explained online at stuff.co.nz and make sure you like and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Kia ora, Aotearoa, and welcome to The Big Stuff Quiz. I'm your host, Imogen Wells, alongside my assistant, the wonderful... Hello everyone! Each week we'll release a new episode to test your wits with two rounds of ten questions. One potluck round and another that's very loosely themed. A bit tangential even. Such a good word. If you think you're up for the challenge, go and follow our show on your favourite podcast platform, The Big Stuff Quiz, is out now. The Big Stuff Quiz is proudly brought to you by Melbourne. Every bit different.